This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. My guest this week is a Grammy-winning blues artist who grew up in California, but who always felt a musical kinship with the South. Nashville really represents American music in a big way, but really where it was was in New Orleans, Alabama, Mississippi, Memphis, you know, that's where it all came from. What's really great about it is like Aretha Franklin walks into Muscle Shoals expecting to find black musicians and figuring all those guys were white. So that tells you it was Southern culture. It wasn't white or black culture. It was Southern culture. Kevin Moore released his first album, Rainmaker, in 1980 and didn't follow it up for nearly 15 years until he reemerged under the moniker Keb Moe in 1994, influenced by legendary bluesmen like Robert Johnson and Muddy Waters. Known for his incomparable talents on the steel guitar, he's since collaborated with a who's who list of music legends like Taj Mahal, Roseanne Cash, Jackson Brown, Bonnie Raitt, and even film director Martin Scorsese. Keb's songs like this one, Better Man, speak to the positive change that he seeks in himself and the world around him. He may be singing the blues, but something about this music just makes you happy. That's okay, cause I'm gonna make my world, my world better place. Gonna keep that smile on my face. Yeah, I'm gonna teach myself, myself how to understand. Gonna make myself a better man. Today, Keb chats with me about what makes the perfect biscuit, the importance of downtown Nashville being home to the National Museum of African American Music, and much more this week on Biscuits and Jam. Well, Keb Moe, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. So you grew up in Los Angeles, but your parents were from the South. They were from Texas and uh, Louisiana, is that right? Yes, my mother was from Hooks, Texas, which is a town outside of Texarkana. And my father is from a town called Heflin, Louisiana, which is outside of Minden, which is outside of Shreveport. And so how did those guys meet, and uh, how did they wind up in California? Well, they met in California. My father came out to California on a Sears and Roebuck scholarship from... (laughs) because he was a valedictorian of his class. So he got to go on a Sears and Roebuck scholarship to UCLA. Wow. So out there, he was uh, going to school, college, and he met my mother. I don't know where he met her, but I guess he uh, met her and he got all googly-eyed. And you know, the next thing you know, here I am, and my sister. <laughs> <laughs> so Keb, we usually talk about food a little bit on this show, and, and I'm just wondering if you grew up with uh, a lot of Southern food there in California. Yes, I grew up with a whole lot of Southern food. And there was one Italian dish that we had, though, was spaghetti and meatballs. (laughs) 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 Wasn't Southern, but we thought it was because we had it so much. 
Or spaghetti and meat sauce. How about that? Not meatballs. Spaghetti and meat sauce because that was a little more economical. You get the ground beef and spread it out there. And But I grew up on really in the morning, you know, breakfast was mostly grits, you know. Yeah. Grits and eggs and bacon. A lot of restaurants serve grits, but the grits I grew up on were not soupy grits. Like you go to someplace, they put grits in a little bowl. The grits I had, they sat on your plate. <laughs> So did your mom or your dad love to cook? Yeah, they both loved to cook. They they divorced when I was about five. So I grew up mostly on my mother's cooking, but my mother would cook great. Basically, they were survival meals because we were she was raising four kids on her own. So what we had was like a lot of things we had were like what would be like uh, neck bones. You know about neck bones? Sure. <laughs> Neck bones, so some potatoes and vegetables in there, and you'd get the neck bones, and that was your meat. But there was very little meat on the neck bones. You kind of get the flavor of the meat. Yeah. You know? And then we were raising a lot of greens and cornbread, beans and rice. So it was heavy plant-based and fried chicken. Oh, she'd make a good fried chicken? Oh, yeah, she'd make a great fried chicken. You had to make it an iron skillet. It was made with Wesson oil. I don't know what she put on it, but... A lot, of, a lot of times, one of the secrets was Lori's seasoned salt. Oh, yeah. And then and my Aunt Laura made a great fried chicken. My father made a great fried chicken. I don't know what he did, but he had a recipe for fried chicken. That was, I mean, girls used to come over to my house, you know, when I was with my dad, when my dad would make fried chicken. <laughs> that good? <laughs> wow. So he was really kind of helping you out. Yeah, he helped me out. Like, and I mean, <laughs> I mean, I never got lucky before the chicken, but, you know, girls would actually come over and say, your dad made some chicken. Ooh! <laughs> so are you a cook yourself yeah but I, don't, I don't cook much southern food if I, if I make if i make greens collard greens or kale or something like that i make it in a wok with uh mushrooms onions and olive oil and i kind of updated it and, and, and during my lean years i made a lot of beans and rice the beans and rice came in really handy yeah. because you know <laughs> beans and rice you make a big pot of rice a big pot of beans and you eat that all week and hopefully, come payday on Friday, there'd be some chicken involved. <laughs> there'd be a piece of meat in the beans <laughs> to give you the illusion of meat. <laughs> well, you know, your mom had a lot of mouths to feed. But we were healthy. We stayed healthy because we ate a lot of plants. We had beans and rice, greens and cornbread. Yeah. You know, and it was a really healthy meal. And so there would sometimes be some chicken and dumplings or Things like okra. I never liked okra, but she would make okra, green beans. Then there was always a piece of uh, salt pork in there to yeah. give it, the, to give it the, the mojo. But my <laughs> Aunt Laura, we would have two Thanksgivings during Thanksgiving. So the big meal, Thanksgiving meal, the turkey would be at the center of it, of course, the turkey. And then the dressing you know, would be a cornbread dressing with sausage, onions, and a number of things in there. And it was just... The dressing was the star. Some of it was got stuffed in the turkey, but most of it was in a big pan. And the dressing was outstanding. So they make cornbread, mash the cornbread up, put it all together, rebake it in the, you know, in the oven, and and they make the gravy out of the stuff. And the giblets from the turkey would go in the dressing. We spread it out, and um, so we'd have Thanksgiving on the Thursday, and then my aunt Laura would do her do her Thanksgiving on Friday. You know, because in the week, in the week, so we can, so those that wanted to do Thanksgiving again, she'd go over, go over, and she had a 
kick butt. I'm just gonna say kick butt. Can you say kick butt on? Oh Southern yeah, sure, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, the the yams, the cornbread dressing, turkey, preferably dark meat for me. I love the dark meat and the gravy, and of course, you know, the sweet potato pie, which is I'm finding to be a rare art. And sometimes, like I live in Nashville, you can't find a good sweet potato pie in Nashville. Yeah, you have to go down to Alabama. That's right, or, or Georgia, <laughs> or, or Atlanta to get a good sweet potato pie. Because I found that I thought when I was moving to Nashville, that I was moving to the South, but Nashville is in the South. But as far as Southern cooking, it's very different because it's a, it's a, it's a melting pot of Southern life, but. The cooking in Mississippi and Alabama are very different from the cooking in Nashville. All I could find was a chest pie, sweet potato pie. So sometimes people will ship me a sweet potato pie from yeah. somewhere else. <laughs> hey, we'll see if we can get you one. <laughs> Be careful. I'm, I'm a harsh critic. <laughs> <laughs> wow, two Thanksgivings in a row. That's a lot, but that sounds pretty great. And she would make biscuits. You know, My mother would make homemade rolls, the rolls she would make. Still today, my sister makes them, and they were just, you just couldn't stop eating them. <laughs> but my Aunt Laurel would make biscuits uh, for breakfast, but she would make rolls, too. It's very similar to what my mother made. But her biscuits, I still haven't had a biscuit as good as my Aunt Laurel's biscuit. She was my father's slightly younger sister, and she lived to be like 93 or something. She was still cooking, still. She just died because she caught pneumonia. You know, she was still driving, still cooking, still telling jokes, <laughs> still everything and sturdy. But she would make these biscuits and I don't know what she did. And she dust them. They had the right dusting. She would like cut them with a can, you know, and I would go to the corner store and get some Br'er Rabbit syrup. For, so you put the butter and the Br'er Rabbit syrup on the biscuits. Get out of town, baby. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be back with Kev Moe after the break. This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and I'm talking with world-renowned blues artist, Keb Moe. So, Keb, to turn to music for a minute, did your parents turn you on to the music that you came to love, or did that come from somewhere else? My mother 
had a first cousin named Prentice. Aunt Trudy was my mother's sister, and Prentice was her son. And Prentice could cook and like crazy. And he played the blues after church on Sunday. We'd go over there. He'd have Lowell Fulsome, B.B. King, Lightning Hopkins, Bobby Blue Bland. He had all this stuff playing on his Blaupunk stereo <laughs> that he had in the house. And that's where I learned about the blues. As far as playing guitar, I learned that from my mother's uh, brother, Herman. Uncle Herman taught me guitar. My mother and father weren't necessarily music aficionados, but the way my mother it probably influenced me the most by dragging me to church every Sunday. Didn't like church, but you got to say the music was on point all the time. So, Kev, I'm wondering if you can describe that for me. I mean, what was it like to be in that church on a Sunday? What did it look like, and what kind of music were you listening to? Well, the church was the Beulah Baptist Church in Watts, and it was right adjacent to the Will Rogers Park, right where the Watts riot started, you know, in 65. It's a pink building, and it was Sunday. It was usually very hot in there, especially in the summertime. You know, no air conditioning. The windows had to be open. And the church was full of women with big hats, lots of cars in the parking lot of 57 Chevys, 58 Chevys. I remember the the pastor's 58 Cadillac that would sit there in the preacher's space. And you'd go in, and there was a lot of paisley ties, wingtip shoes, suits with pinstripes that men had owned for years, that that was their suit, two suits, you know? And the deacon board, shiny shoes, slick back hair, men and women wearing high heels and those stockings with the seams in the back. I mean, they were dressed. They were dressed. (laughs) They were dressed. Church is casual now, but church was a formal occasion back then. You had to have a suit. You had to wear a tie, you had to be clean, you know. And so it was very, very long service. The service would start about 10 o'clock, officially start at 11, and would go till 2 o'clock in the afternoon, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. Long, <laughs> hot. There was a lot of music, a lot of preaching, announcements, a lot of Dr. Watts. You know what Dr. Watts is? No. Call and response. Where, where the, the, the deacon would go like, I, I love the Lord, he heard my cry. And, you know, and the and artist said, and pity the heavenly <laughs> All these things. Now, that's all I remember about it. And I'm just going like, wow. But I mean, the, the deacons would do that. And that's called Dr. Watts, the old thing, which is a real... Thing that kind of doesn't happen anymore in Baptist churches, in the black churches, yeah. you know. And so it was like, I think it was probably a, a throwback of field hollers and old South and uh, stuff like that. But it was beautiful. Sermon, ah, too much blaming and, you know, just tell me what you shouldn't do, what you shouldn't do and all that stuff and going to hell, going to heaven. I was like, was not into it. <laughs> So at some point, you really went from this music of the church into the blues, but it doesn't seem like 
that much of a stretch to get from one to the other. Well, the blues, I'm watching the, the church innocently. I'm, I'm listening to the radio, you know, what's going on the radio, and you the, and immediately you correlate. The world teaches you that these things are connected without telling you. All the singers, like a popular like sing Sam, Sam Cooke was famous, and people knew that he came from the Soul Stirs, and that he was, you know, had uh, started singing uh, secular music against the wishes of the church, probably. And all these singers came from the church. Because they sounded just like the people I heard in church. <laughs> yeah. So you kind of right. knew that they were the same thing. <laughs> so, Kev, you know, a lot of artists make the move to Nashville in their 20s or their teens. But for you, that came a lot later. And I've heard that your wife, Robbie, was actually an instigator. How did that move happen? Well, we packed up the house, called a moving van, and here we are. <laughs> That's the short story. Here's the long story. So we're sitting in the dining room, and she looks at me, teary-eyed, and goes, I want to leave L.A. I want to get out of here. I'm like, okay, well. Of course, like I, I had told her that we, we didn't have to stay in L.A., so she wanted to go. So we had a discussion about where we're going to go because I could clearly see that she was not going to be happy staying in L.A. So we started talking about towns, and the discussion was, okay, if you put a gun to our heads right now and said, you got to move right now, where are you going? We both said, Nashville. <laughs> so we moved to Nashville, and I just kind of like got comfortable with it after the, after the moving van left and realized that all our stuff was here, and this is where we were going to live, so I made peace with it. And this is what year that you moved? 2010. Then it started raining really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, rain like I've never seen. Like buckets of rain started going down. And I was about to go out to Leaper's Fork to do a jam. It was like Robin Ford and Vince Gill and Larry Carlton. These guys are out there going to do a jam. So I said, I'm going to go out there. And um, it was just raining. I put my stuff in the back of the car. And, and then Vince calls and goes like, you might want to just wait a minute, stay where you are. <laughs> you weren't used to all that rain. Of, that was the big flood. <laughs> oh, that rain, yeah. Yeah, right. that's the big Nashville flood. <laughs> so that we got welcomed to Nashville by the flood. And uh, so once that was done with and uh, we got all of my stuff out, the big puddle down at Soundcheck, <laughs> my gear, where my gear was, I figure that's the worst it can get. <laughs> so here we are, 11 years later. Well, Kev, you seem like a Nashville institution now, so it, it seems like it's worked out pretty well. Did you say imposition or institution? <laughs> institution? You, you're part of the fabric of that town now. Well, Nashville has been very nice and very accommodating to me. And so it made for a nice transition. I mean, I would have liked the town even without the welcome, you know. <laughs> but that made it better, and I got to meet different players and different things. And I literally started a new life and expanded my realm of people to engage with creatively and socially. It was great. So, Kev, you won a Grammy for an album that you did with Taj Mahal where the two of you went by the name Tajmo. How did y'all get to know each other? 
Was that in Nashville or was that earlier? First, I got to know Taj Mahal when I heard Taj Mahal. First time I heard him was at a high school assembly in Compton, California in 1969. He came to school and did a performance. And so after that, I didn't really know what to do or where to find Taj. I didn't buy records. I had a guitar and I played in a band. You know, and everybody else had records and I just kind of tagged along. So while I was going to LA Trade Tech, a friend of mine gave me a uh, four-track tape. I don't know if you remember four-track before. There was before eight-tracks. You know, you can look kind of young. Anyway, the, <laughs> what preceded the eight-track was the four-track. So uh, I got a four-track tape of Taj Mahal's Natural Blues. And I put that in my tape machine in my car. I rode around with that thing for I don't know how long. Over and over. Years later, I wanted to meet Taj Mahal. I always wanted to wanted to meet him. I was I was forty years old at that point by then, you know. And then over the years, I'd run into him different places. And Taj is a very engaging, talkative, always willing to socialize, very gregarious, very extroverted. And he would teach all the time. He's teaching you all the time. Just information just spews out of him about musical history. So one day he goes, we're in Atlanta, and this is, you know, this is like years later now, at the at a tribute for Greg Allman. And he goes, Hey man, we ought to do a record together. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought about it for about two seconds and I said, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't have to think about it very long. We, we settled on we settled on a date, which is like a few months ahead. He came out. I didn't know what it was going to be like. I didn't know whether he was going to hate everything I did or it was going to be whatever. I, I had no idea. We started working. I had one song ready. And uh, he, um, that's good, man. That's good. So we started recording and we started writing. And and then he, so I go, oh, he says, oh, yeah, you. I think you know what you're doing. You got this. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So we proceeded to like remotely make the record. I would send him ideas, and he would comment on them, say yay or nay, and that's how we made the record. Y'all had a great song on that album called uh, Don't Leave Me Here. Yeah. That's kind of a love song to Mississippi. Mm-hmm. What was the origin of that song? Well, Taj Mahal, him and I, and Gary Nicholson, sit down and ride to ride. I said, how to wear that? How to wear the end of that? How to wear the nine sound? How the food tastes in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then from there on, we just took it all, took off from there. You know, <laughs> how, how the weather in the country, how the weather in down south, dun, 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 how the food tastes. So there, there, the weather, country, the food, the south, and we're off and running. Remembering about the south, you know, that good food, all the big leg women, you know. I love about that line, like, way down in Ida Bean, they got more fine, big leg women than any one man ever seen. <laughs> Food, women, chicken, you know, good old music and stuff, blues. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of like that famous line that Muddy Waters said, like, you know, if you was black one Saturday night, you wouldn't want to be nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> So 
Kev, I recently went to the National Museum of African American Music in Nashville. Yes. Which was amazing. And I know that you've been involved with that, I think, from the beginning. What does that institution mean to you? And what do you hope people will take away from it? Well, I think it's a great place where we can really focus on African-American music as a whole. I think it's in the right town. It's the right thing. It, sh- it shouldn't be anywhere. Nashville is a perfect right place for it on Broadway, you know, which is very important because that section of town and this town, Nashville, really needs that to really break up the monotony of downtown Nashville and give Nashville another look in its most popular part of town. I never really felt like, you know, I wanted to go down there for anything. It just felt, I just didn't feel really um, there was anything down there. I didn't want to go listen to country music in bars. I didn't want to get drunk. I just didn't want to go down there at all. And I think it made a lot of, a lot of uh, reason for Af- us African-American folks to go down there and, and enjoy Broadway. So it made for a place to go and it made for a place to offset all the museums, the great museums like the Johnny Cash Museum and the George Jones and then Jason Aldean's bar. And, you know, it's all very country leaning towards Southern country culture and having the African-American museum in such a, especially such a classy place. And it's dwarfed by the Country Music Hall of Fame. (laughs) I think they can fit that place into like one of the closets of the, Country Music Hall of Fame, you know. Oh, I don't know about that. It's it's really something to see. It's really beautiful, what I'm saying, but it's so significant that it's there. Nashville really represents American music in a big way because it's, it's, it's in the music music triangle of, you know, New Orleans, Nashville, and uh, what's the other town? Of, um, don't start me to, like, thinking I know history. Well, Memphis. Memphis, Yeah. <laughs> Memphis, Atlanta, Nashville, <laughs> where a lot of great music in New Orleans, you know, all a lot of music came out of, you know, the South. And then it went to L.A., you know. I mean, Aretha Franklin had to come down to Muscle Shoals to really get her thing started. That's where they knew what, what, what things were talking about. She was from Detroit, you know, gospel and all that stuff, and the very sophisticated thing of Detroit. But really where it was was in New Orleans, Alabama, Mississippi, Memphis, you know, that's where it all came from. That's yeah. where my, where when, when I went to church, the, the music and the food, that's where it's thick, you know, and what's really great about it is like Aretha Franklin walks into Muscle Shoals expecting to find, you know, black musicians and figure out all those guys were white. So that tells you it was Southern culture. It wasn't white or black culture. It was Southern culture. So much of your music is happy, and one of my favorite songs of yours is called Life is Beautiful, and it's just one of those songs that makes you feel good. Do you remember where you were when you wrote that song? Yeah, you remember that couch I was sitting on when my wife was crying and going to, (laughs) let's go to Nashville? (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of my Nashville friends who was actually at that time living in Toronto, Colin Linden came over the house. He was in L.A. working on something. And he came over. 
and we started writing that song on that couch. <laughs> well, it's a great song, and um, Kev, would you mind just singing a little bit of it for us? Oh, really? I had no idea I was going to have to sing for my supper. <laughs> you don't have to do anything you don't want to. <laughs> Let's go drifting through the trees. Let's go sailing on the sea. Let's go dancing on the juke joint floor. And leave our troubles on behind. Have a party. So easily forgotten. All the most important things. Like the melody in the moonlight in your eyes And a song that lasts forever Keeps on getting better all the time Oh, so great. So great. I love that song. Um, well, Keb, you know, one of the questions I've ended these interviews with is what does it mean to you to be a Southerner? And of course, you know, you grew up in California, but let me just ask you, what has it meant to you to live in the South for this last decade? Well, the first thing I noticed when I moved here, after a few months of being here, was that it was very clear when I engaged with the musicians here, country, R&B, gospel, whatever, that this is where what I was learning in the South and Southern California came from. And what I witnessed and was raised with in California was still very thick here. I was really kind of going back to where I came from, you know, where the music that I loved came from. And that's why I was really um, embraced here and Vince would tell me, like, you know, why don't you make a country record? Said, why, why? Who wants who wants to hear me doing a country record? You know, he says, well, you're more country than a lot of people here that say they're country. You know, <laughs> and I couldn't get my head wrapped around that. And then my wife points out, she starts playing my songs back to me. Listen to this, buddy. <laughs> and sure enough, there's just as much blues and gospel and country influence as anything else. So it's all really all one thing. I think country has the soul that R&B and uh, old pop used to have, you know. Yeah. Like the Beatles, I mean, that, that era still lives in country music. It's still adventurous. Not that hip-hop is not, because it is very adventurous, you know. But, you know, I found, I found a lot of where I came from right here, so I was really coming back into the fold, I guess while maintaining my Southern California roots and my all those experiences that, that made me who I am today. It's great. I didn't I didn't, and I did not see that coming. <laughs> well Kebmo, there are a lot of people really excited to see you out on the road. I know that. And thank you so much for being on Biscuits and Jam. Thank you, see it. Who knew you knew about you know collard greens and cornbread. <laughs> Thanks for listening to my conversation with Keb Mo. Check out kebmo.com for tour dates, new music, and more. 
Join me for our next episode with singer-songwriter and Oklahoma native Parker Millsap. I've gotten to the point now where I'll use recipes, but I know the basics enough. I realize at a certain point that it's not too dissimilar from any creative art, if you will, in that like you learn your scales, which is like learning how hot to keep the thing, like how long do you cook this? And then eventually you can use all those scales or skills to cook kind of anything. You know, you're like, okay, I know how to saute. I know not to put the butter on too hot. I know to add the aromatics first. Once I learned some of those building blocks, it started to become fun. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama, and this podcast was produced and edited in Nashville, Tennessee. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or telling your friends about the program. You can find us online at southernliving.com and subscribe to our print publication by searching for Southern Living at www.magazine.store. Biscuits and Jam is produced by Heather Morgan Schott, Chrissy Tiglius, and me, Sid Evans, for Southern Living. Thanks also to Ann Kane, Jim Hankey, Danielle Roth, Andy Bosnack, Matt Sav, and Rachel King at Pod People. We'll see you back here next week for more Biscuits and Jam. <laughs>